thewellnesscouch.com, streaming wellness into your lives. The Real Food Real is a fresh and educational podcast dedicated to your health. We get real on current research, debunk food myths, and educate you on how to just eat real food. Your host, Steph Lowe, the natural nutritionist, is one of Australia's leading sports nutritionists, passionate about simplifying nutrition and addicted to coconut lattes, smoothies, and sweet potato. If you love the show, then please leave us a review on iTunes. Share the real food real with your friends and continue to spread the real food love. Hi team and welcome back to The Real Food Real. Today on the show we are joined by Professor Gregor Reed, who is a scientist at the Lawson Health Research Institute and professor at the University of Western Ontario. Professor Reed specializes in beneficial microbes and to date has developed novel therapies used by several million people around the world. Today we discuss beneficial bacteria and their impact on immunity and reproduction and then explore probiotics and prebiotics for optimal health. Hi, Dr. Reed, and welcome to the show. Hello, thank you. It's great to have you here, and I appreciate that you've been working in the space of beneficial microbes for some time, I believe, even before the term microbiome was coined. So can you give us a little bit of um, uh, a synopsis of your background? Yeah, sure. I started uh, with a PhD in New Zealand, uh, not so far away from you, uh, at Massey University. And when I came to Canada after that, I met a urologist called Dr. Andrew Bruce. And he had uh, made this clinical observation. He basically looked at women who had recurrent bladder infections and those who were controls. And uh, he found that, the, as you would expect, the E. coli that were causing the bladder infection were in the bladder and the vagina of the patients. But in the control woman, he found these organisms called lactobacilli in the vagina. And at that time, so that was 1973, I joined him in 1982. Uh, at that time, really everyone was studying E. coli and you know the harmful bacteria, thinking that they could make vaccines and antibiotics against them. And he said, no, no, wait a minute, I wonder if uh, the lactobacilli are helping to make the woman healthy because they were so prominent in healthy women. So essentially, I joined him in Toronto and we started to work on it on the basis of let's look at what the beneficial microbes might be doing. And you can imagine 82, 83, really no one was interested in this at all. And we literally got laughed at in the corridors of the the hospital. And uh, we stuck with it because we felt that there really was a role for bacteria in preventing disease. And so that's what started it out. And our goal really at that time was to try and come up with a way to help women who got recurrent uh, urogenital infections, that's bladder and vaginal infections. And, you know, that's uh, essentially millions of women who really haven't seen a new management uh, technique for probably 40 years. It's basically, you have an infection, here's an antibiotic, and uh, off you go. Well, we now know that antibiotics, yes, are effective in treating uh, acute infections, but too often we uh, give them for the wrong reasons or when they're not needed. and. Also, they're really almost like carpet bombers where they they come in and destroy as many bacteria as they can find. 
and that's not necessarily a good thing. And in fact, in, in the, the 90s, we did a study showing that even just a week of antibiotics for a bladder infection knocks out the beneficial microbes for over six weeks. So it sort of gave us a reason to believe that we should try and develop a way to give women an alternative, meaning um, could we give them back some beneficial bacteria like lactobacilli and would that help them sort of get back to normal quicker and prevent recurrences. So in those early days, um, we did lots of studies, in fact, uh, published many papers on this. Very difficult to get grant money and do big studies, but we did enough to uh, show that, in fact, lactobacilli did have properties that could help um, essentially restore a woman back to normal uh, as best as possible. Um, when you develop something like this as a, an intravaginal suppository, for example, then it becomes a drug. And because uh, we were in such early days, uh, it was very difficult to get that kind of money. It, it would really require setting up a business. We set up a business, but we, we couldn't um, get the kind of money needed to develop a drug. And at the time, my wife said to me, um, the way that you get an E. coli bladder infection is the organisms come from the rectum to the vagina, the perineum, and then into the urethra and into the bladder. So that we call it an ascending infection. She said, well, why not give the lactobacilli orally? Maybe they can also do the same. And if you develop an oral product, then it becomes a supplement and it doesn't necessarily need to be a drug. And so we, we set off doing that and in fact showed that that indeed was possible. Um, I can go into more details on that later on, but uh, uh, we started out with a, a clinical observation uh, developed the science and uh, went from there. Yeah, that's fascinating, and I think very much so. I agree. You know, it was a, it was years ago now when the microbiome wasn't as vogue as it is now. Um, but you've done some amazing work. Um, before we do talk about specific strains, I'd love for you to share um, the experiential learning program that you're doing with um, Western Heads East and your work in Africa, if you would. Sure. So uh, I, I sh at some point we should talk about the definition of probiotics, but because yes. that, that uh, was in 2001. But So the thing about probiotics, it's uh, essentially came from nowhere. I mean, in Canada in 2002, we had uh, one of the World Health Organization United Nations meetings here to develop guidelines. And if I had asked uh, 100 people on campus about a probiotic, probably 99 would never have heard the word. And there was a huge change in uh, 2004 with the introduction of a commercial probiotic yogurt, a huge change in Canada, not just our campus. So at that time, uh, I had also said that I think probiotics or beneficial microbes should be made available at an affordable price to everybody. And with the introduction of that yogurt, it was about 75 cents a cup. And, you know, there's many people even in London, Ontario, that simply can't afford that. And once you get to rural Africa, there is not a chance people would afford that. And Stephen Lewis, who was the Canadian United Nations ambassador to HIV AIDS in Africa, came to our campus 
and challenged everyone to try and help this uh, terrible conditions and diseases in Africa. And a manager in our housing department was at his talk and he thought, you know, we get six, seven thousand first year students come here every year. Maybe we can get them to fundraise or do something. So he called together a few people and just by chance I had been contacted for a different purpose. I'd recently been to Kenya at that point. And my message really was, if you're going to do something in a developing country, you have to do it that they use their own local resources. You can't have them waiting for a plane to arrive with a solution. And then, you know, when the plane stops coming in, then they're back to square one. And so I said, why don't we teach them how to make probiotic yogurt? Because it has many uh, properties for nutrition, uh, has immune enhancement properties. It has uh, an ability to help with the gut. So when you have diseases like HIV and you're malnourished, the gut tends to be leaky. And if probiotic organisms can help seal that, then it means that they'll uh, be able to absorb more nutrients. So that's what we did, and we called it Western Heads East because of Western University going east to Africa. And we taught some local mothers how to make this probiotic yogurt using a strain that I gave them, uh, Lactobacillus rhamnosus TR1. And it turned out that they they loved it. It was very effective. And up to um, a few years ago, it was feeding about 3,500 people a day. But the, there was a major problem in our process. So what what you can do with yogurt, and many of your listeners probably know this, you, you can passage it. So you can take some of this, this day's yogurt, put it into milk, and then sort of carry on and make more yogurt. Well, you can't do that with the probiotic strain. So the probiotic was stored at an institute, a medical institute, because we wanted to make sure it didn't get contaminated and it was prepared properly. And they um, prepared it, and the, the mothers had to go down to that institute, get the, the probiotic, come back, and add it to their fermented milk and make it into yogurt. That step was always a problem because it uh, requires time and effort. And eventually, the National Institute for Medical Research just, I guess, they got fed up making it. And so they stopped doing it, which meant the kitchens were no longer making probiotic, they were making regular yogurt. Now, during those uh, early years, or well, actually that happened later, but a colleague of mine from the Netherlands joined me in uh, Tanzania, and he was really excited about the project. And what he did is he went back to the Netherlands, and uh, so Remco Court was his name, and his colleague Wilbert Sebesma, and they said, look, I'd like to set up a, a little uh, foundation that does something about this in Africa is uh, bringing microbiology and food into uh, the space. So they did that, they called it Yoba for Life, and the big breakthrough that they made was they, they created a sachet, mm. and in the sachet is one gram of one of the probiotic strains and a, a starter culture. And that made it possible that you use the sachet to make 100 liters of probiotic yogurt, and therefore the uh, mamas no longer needed to go to another site to pick up the probiotic. So this was a huge breakthrough and uh, the Canadian government gave us a grant and we're now uh, active in Uganda, Kenya and Tanzania and the Yoba for Life 
particularly with Haifa International in Uganda, are uh, in over a hundred sites with uh, community kitchens. So it's really quite incredible and uh, feeding over 120,000 people every day. And it's not us feeding them, it's them creating the products for themselves using local resources. So it's, it's very, very cool. It's amazing. I love that story. And I think, you know, 120,000 people getting access to the probiotics daily is something that you should be so proud of. So I do want to address your definition of probiotics. I know that you feel very strongly about this and, and rightly so. So I'd love you to speak to that. Yeah. So, you know, I don't want to get too technical with it for the mm. listeners, but the definition is live microorganisms that when administered in adequate amounts confer a health benefit on the host. Now, that that's quite general and it was done on purpose. So it means that many different types of organisms, uh, even recombinant strains, can fit into that definition, but they have to be live. So there's no such thing as a dead probiotic. They have to be administered in adequate amounts. And this is where people get confused because they say, well, it should be 15 or 20 or the more organisms, the better. That's not necessarily the case. It could be one strain or two strains. And then they say, well, we have to have 20 billion or 50 billion. That again is not the case. It doesn't matter how many you have. It's proving that they are effective. And that's where uh, conferring a health benefit on the host is really critical. Because if, if, you know, if I said to you, oh, I took a probiotic today and it changed my life, I've never felt better. You'd be, be happy for me, but really I haven't proved that it did it. I would have to conduct a trial to prove, in fact, that it wasn't just a placebo effect and indeed it was conferring a benefit. And, and then I'd have to tell you what that benefit is. So in order to get to using the word probiotic, you really should uh, need to do uh, clinical studies in humans that show the benefit. Now, unfortunately, not every company does that. And, you know, the argument I've heard is, well, they're too small a company. Well, I don't mind how big or how small you are. If you want to use the term probiotic, then do the work. And the reason that you're using the term probiotic is because you realize that people are keen on these products and want to have them. And therefore, you're sort of building onto the market. So I would argue that you shouldn't be doing that unless you have uh, done the studies. So... Um, that that has led to a situation where in many countries there are lots and lots of products called probiotics, but unfortunately not too many that have been properly tested in humans. Mm. And as a result, in Canada and, and the U.S., um, they have come out with a it's really a, a, a compendium of the strains that have been tested in humans, and the idea is a consumer or a healthcare professional can look at this list and say, okay, is the product that I have in my hand, is it on the list? The answer is no, then therefore it hasn't been tested in humans in a published paper. So the company might say, well, we've tested it in 3,000 patients, but that hasn't been published and in the public domain. So there's no way of, of uh, an expert saying, well, I can verify that this work's been done. So that's urging companies to then publish the data. If it's on the list, so supposing you have you have irritable bowel syndrome and you would like a product for that, well, you can go to this list and find out the number of products that have been tested on IBS. And then if you're really, really keen and want to, to sort of look at the science, you can then look at the papers and decide, well, this was done with constipation or this was done for pain and bloating, etc. And therefore, that's the product I should test. 
And I think once we get this list um, out, and I, I hope that Australia creates the same thing, then it will pressure companies to do more studies and it will inform the consumers in a much more uh, useful manner of which products at least have been tested. None of this is claiming that one is better than the other. That's uh, a whole different ballgame that really I don't want to get into because it's not my place to tell someone what, which product helps them more than another one. Yeah, I think that's fascinating. And so just to clarify, do you refer to them as being a a bacteria until the benefit is proven, which then they're a probiotic? Right. So uh, an example which um, it's quite complicated. I, I could imagine if you didn't have a science background, it would sound complicated. So th- th- people have possibly heard of lactobacillus acidophilus. Mm-hmm. So the lactobacillus to me is like, um, say, if I say George Clooney. So the lactobacillus is the Clooney and the acidophilus is the George. But really it's not George Clooney because George Clooney, when you say that, that's a that's two words and someone's name. And when I say George Clooney, everyone immediately thinks of the actor. Well, it's not the actor. In order to, for me to describe that as the actor, I'd have to say lactobacillus, acidophilus, NCFM, for example. Mm. In other words, that the NCFM is now specifying that I really mean the actor who goes to Hollywood, not the guy who's 80 years old living down the street, right? So it, and unless you, you define that, then you, you don't know what you're taking. And it, you would have lactobacillus, say acidophilus, inside your intestine right now perhaps. But that doesn't mean it's a probiotic. It's only a probiotic lactobacillus acidophilus if you took the strain NCFM and swallowed it and you know took it on a regular basis. And it, it might sound like it's um, kind of a silly way to do it, but what it does is it means that if you are creating a probiotic, you have to then follow the, uh, the guidelines that says, I'm describing the strain, I'm describing exactly the number, I'm showing you that when I do experiments or human studies with this exact product, then here's the exact result that comes out. Because if you don't do that, then, for example, there's many kefirs uh, that are made by people and um, the, the different formulations. And, and so I would say to someone, kefir is an excellent fermented food, and I would recommend people take it. But I wouldn't call it a probiotic because I can't define the, the kefir that you are taking. Now, if a company goes out and defines their kefir and says, here's the 10 strains that are in it, Here's the study that we did with it. The product's called XYZ. I could then say XYZ kefir is a probiotic. I know it's been tested and here's why you might take it. Mm. And so so it's very important people understand that because, you know, I've heard, oh, we all have probiotics inside us. And no, we don't unless we took them. Or uh, my gut has got um, probiotics that that, um, I could go and isolate. No, 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 no. Your gut might have a lactobacillus that you could then isolate and do experiments with and develop it so it becomes a candidate to be a probiotic. Mm. But no, it isn't per se. Does that make sense to you? Yeah, I appreciate that definitely. And it's obviously why, and I was going to ask you in regards to the Yoba for Life, um, when you spoke about the particular strain, which was the Lactobacillus rhamnosus GR1. um, No, well, yeah. So I should clarify that the... 
So Yoba um, is, is the Dutch sort of arm of our project, and okay. the Western Heads East is involved indirectly in another arm. Okay. And there's two sachets. So Yoba for Life um, had a so when you when you grow yogurt, you need an organism called Streptococcus thermophilus. Mm -hmm. And everybody says, oh, Streptococcus is terrible. No, no, no. It's not the one that causes the bad throat. It's the one that ferments milk. It's a mm -hmm. good bacterium. Now you need that, and uh, then you add a lactobacillus. And what the yoba did was the lactobacillus rhamnosus yoba is actually a GG organism that is uh, very well known around the world. In fact, there's over 800 studies on that GG organism. But they didn't call it GG. What they did was they changed its name to yoba because all the patents were now uh, out of date. And so they genericized it essentially. On the other side, there's a sachet, exact the same streptococcus, but we have put the lactobacillus GR1 into that, and we call that sachet Fiti. So it's sort of, it might sound semantics, but there's two different types, slightly different um, contents. And um, yeah, in, in, in my parts of Western Heads East, we're using the GR1 Fiti uh, sachet. Right, okay. So then let's explore, say, why you chose that particular strain and will lead into, um, you know, exactly why the, the, the strains and what their sort of clinical benefits are. Right. Well, at the time, so 2003 and four, um, I said, well, I'll donate this strain to the project because lactobacillus rhamnosus is uh, very often a dairy isolate and I felt that it would um, and indeed it proved that it, it does do well in milk when it's with streptococcus and so therefore it was a good strain to put into a yogurt. As, in addition to that and probably more important than that is we had already tested it in yogurt uh, for example in inflammatory bowel disease and it had a positive impact on the immune uh, system. We had also tested it in uh, uh, against allergy and in some other uh, in experiments in the lab. And so it was well documented. It was a strain with lots of benefits. We did a study, for example, showing that it could compete against salmonella, which, of course, uh, causes a lot of food poisoning, and even uh, killed the HIV virus because of the acid it produced. Now, we didn't use the strain thinking we're going to cure HIV. That wasn't really the point. But the issue was, did it have properties that would allow it to be beneficial to a population that had immune system problems and was faced with a lot of pathogens that caused diarrhea? So it felt to us a very good strain to use. And that's why uh, that sort of combination of properties and its ability to make a yogurt or why we chose it for Africa. Yeah, that makes sense. Excellent. And obviously what one strain was your choice. Um, yeah. What I think would be good to clarify is because, you know, what, what I'm sort of exposed to in, in this space is that people do talk about how important diversity is. Yeah. And you probably hear it all the time with, and I know yep. you were referring that to, to before. So what are your thoughts on, you know, getting that diversity, so lots of strains, and how do we sort of look at the, the combined benefit of strains? 
Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, from our work has primarily been on the urogenital tracts so of the, uh, the vagina, and it's the opposite in that case. Right. You don't want high diversity. You want low diversity, mostly lactobacilli. In the intestine, it looks like from the, the studies that have been published to date that high diversity, in other words, lots and lots of different types of bacteria. Now, um, the only time that's been replicated is essentially with a fecal transplant. So you take someone else's intestinal bacteria and you put it into another pair, uh, a recipient. And that's, that's transferring the whole gamish of probably a thousand different bacterial types. Now, when you, you can do that because clinically the person is seriously ill or, or uh, compromised in some way that you need that kind of transplantation. Now, when it comes to food and supplements, you, you can't simply do that. You can't take poop, put it in a capsule, and then you know stick it on the market. It becomes a drug, and um, you have to, to define all the organisms. So we've sort of compromised and we've said, okay, what organisms are safe for us to, to take? And lactobacilli and bifidobacterium are two of the ones that, that stand out right away because they're lactic acid bacteria that have a long history of safe use uh, in various food types. But then you start to look at fermented foods of different sorts, kombucha, kimchi, etc. And people are, are looking at, well, what organisms are in there? And it turns out, yes, there are lactic acid bacteria, but there's also other types of organisms. Now, if you consume these products, are they helpful? And I think the answer is yes. There's lots of studies on fermented foods being very good for us. Then will you say, why is that? And it could be, and I think probably this is what will happen, is that when you take those fermented foods with those organisms, they are helping the whole mass of bacteria in your gut. So in other words, you, you might have an E. coli inside your gut that is performing a very important digestive function, but you can't go easily and swallow another E. coli to, to boost the numbers. However, if you swallow some of those uh, fermented foods, maybe it helps the E. coli and those other organisms, bacteroides, etc., that are important in the gut. Maybe it's helping them to grow and, and keep this diversity. So it's almost like what would... Uh, uh, the Amazon rainforest be without rain and you know for you to try and change that rainforest or pick that rainforest up and take it to downtown Sydney Australia that that's just not going to survive mm. so how can you then create your own little rainforest in Sydney Australia using as many different things that complement each other because that that's the way these systems ecological systems work one strain helps another, or one strain produces a product that the other one uses. And so the, the, the big thing in microbiome research just now is how do you create that ecosystem that the end result of which are more benefits than harm? And it's gonna be a challenge, but people are really facing it. And obviously food and probiotics or uh, prebiotics, which I can get to later, if you take them, then that's an easy way to try and manipulate that environment. Um, it's not like if I took your uh, gut microbiota today and tried to change it, it would be very, very difficult to change it because you've had that in your system since you've been a small child. But what we might be able to do is change how it functions. 
And therefore, when you take a probiotic or a fermented food, as long as those organisms are passing through your gut, it's changing the function in a beneficial way. Even if the organisms themselves don't stick around, it's a bit like um, you know, if you took a, a maple tree and put it in the Amazon rainforest, uh, it wouldn't survive because the other ones would outcompete it. But uh, and so therefore, a probiotic doesn't stay inside you, and and that's why you have to keep taking it. But the benefits are potentially worth it in terms of diversity. Yeah, I think that's really important, and the the function is not something that we see sort of measured per se, like a lot of people are doing, stool testing at the moment, and they're looking at the bacteria that are currently there. But I guess that's that's not looking at what they've taken that's passed through and created a benefit. Do you agree? Yeah, I think we need to be testing the metabolites, mm. um, so the biomarkers, the molecules that are sometimes in the stool, sometimes in the bloodstream, sometimes you can see them in the urine. And I think that's going to be much more instructional. Um, yes, it's good to know your microbiota. Um, and potentially, as I say, you might be able to kind of pointers that say, well, it looks like this person is obese and taking too much meat. But, you know, you could and you could uh, meet the, the person and find that out yourself without having to test the microbiota. So I think the microbiota testing is at the moment a little bit kind of trendy without really giving us an awful lot of information whereas the function and the metabolomes that's where the real information is going to be yeah that's fascinating and obviously science is right there so we've just just a matter of time really well there's this cool uh, system called the eye knife which was developed in imperial college in england and it's essentially a surgical knife and at the top of it there's a tube because when you cut into tissue, you, you release gas. And the gas goes up this little tube, and within half a second, it can tell the surgeon whether uh, you have grade four cancer or grade two cancer, or, or whether potentially a, a liver is gonna be transplanted successfully or not. And that's really uh, met metabolomics at the, the very front of medicine. And uh, I think those types of inventions are going to come along pretty quickly. Yeah. Yep. Stay tuned. So what yep. about, have you got some other clinically documented strains that you'd like to comment on? Um, well, I mean, I, I don't want to necessarily promote, you know, my own strains and things, but there's a couple mm. of areas that, that I think uh, are worth talking about. One is in the neonatal intensive care unit where studies in Australia as well as around the world are absolutely conclusive that when you have a low birth weight premature baby they should be given probiotics to prevent necrotizing enterocolitis and it just amazes me why that is not universal across our system it took a long time for me to persuade them to do it in London Ontario which they now do but I think that's uh, I mean numbers numbers needed to treat is very low compared to, for example, aspirin for heart attack or for a mammogram detecting cancer or a statin preventing a heart attack, and yet we haven't done it. So that, that to me is, is a way that we can save lives and improve lives. Um, and there's even now certain strains that help with colic. And I remember I had a talk on this and and a clinician sort of laughed. He said, well, why are you worried about colic? Because it only lasts for about three months. And I said, well, maybe the couple will be divorced by that three months. 
because uh, you have a baby crying for 197 minutes a day, then mm. it's absolutely um, uh, crazy for the family. And if a lactobacillus reuteri can cut that down to 25 or 50 minutes, then surely that's worth taking when the drugs don't work. So that's been interesting. And then we, we recently did a study in Canada where we said, based on the data that's available for respiratory tract infections, so upper respiratory tract infections, colds and flus, if you took probiotics to prevent it or to reduce the duration of uh, from, say, four days to five, uh, five days to four days, so it might not seem like a lot, but, you know, still one day. One day that the parent doesn't have to stay at home with the child, for example. Um, you could save the Canadian healthcare system $100 million. We published the paper in calculating that. So it has implications for society as well. And I think that that's another thing that we have to start to grapple with because our healthcare budgets are going out of control. Um, I guess there's other conditions like IBS, IBD. Crohn's disease hasn't been a success, so probiotics for Crohn's disease hasn't really worked uh, and, and I don't think we're really that sure why. Um, but, yeah, I think there's, there's many other examples of probiotics. But our own studies are looking at environmental toxins. And when I was in Australia a few weeks ago uh, with uh, naturopaths, there was about 600 naturopaths in the room, and I asked them, I said, uh, do you realize that in Canada 15% of pregnant women have mercury levels high enough to cause neurological problems in the fetus um, but none of us get our mercury tested and all these hands went up in the audience they said no 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 we test for mercury and I was surprised I was encouraged in fact because um, a lot of things like mercury and arsenic are in our environment and if they get into the, the woman then it potentially could damage the baby and we need to start paying attention to it and the same for pesticides so we've been doing a series of studies to use probiotics because, you know, I can't make the world stop using pesticides or I can't stop some of the contaminants of chemicals. But if we could give you, suggest to you, let's take a probiotic food that would bind to those toxins. So in other words, I, I, I have a fish meal and I'll take yogurt with it. Then could the, the, the mercury bind to the lactobacilli? and then not be absorbed into your bloodstream. And we did a study and found, in fact, that was the case. So that's kind of, I think, quite exciting. And the more recent work we've done has been on the honeybee, which is threatened by a certain type of um, pesticide. And we showed that in, you could also give the honeybee lactobacilli and prevent or, or delay the, the, the killing effect of some pesticides. So I think uh, my own feeling is that uh, as we grow in number in the world and pollute it much more than uh, we need to look at how we prevent those toxins from getting into a system. That is fascinating and I think definitely allowing us to take the power back because you're right, we can't change all of those processes overnight um, no. and really fascinating that you know we have that ability to um, you know, protect our long-term health with probiotics. Yeah. So what about um, when it comes to the role of beneficial bacteria, what are the benefits from a reproductive point of view outside of what you've mentioned for um, the mercury? Right. 
Well, it turns out um, I was in India a number of years ago, and I met the woman, Professor Kamali, I think her name was, and she was the first woman to ever perform in vitro fertilization in India. So she was quite well known, and it might seem ironic to some people because that, that population is over a billion people. Why would you need reproductive assistance? But just like anywhere else, sometimes women cannot get pregnant. And she said that if a woman in her clinic had bacterial vaginosis, she wouldn't get pregnant. And bacterial vaginosis essentially is the displacement of lactobacilli from the vagina and the overgrowth of bacteria that uh, often causes sort of uh, foul-smelling uh, metabolite. And I, um, there's some studies that suggest that lactobacilli can actually cure bacterial vaginosis and help prevent it. So there's a case where um, it may in, ha in fact have a, a role in some reproductive cases. And it made me wonder that could it be that in healthy women who do have the lactobacilli, could it be that the, they are playing a bigger role in reproduction than we thought? And some studies with uh, sperm has shown that sperm motility, and in other words, the ability of that sperm to reach the egg, is enhanced by lactobacilli. And it doesn't surprise me that our lives are, are sort of integrated with certain bacterial species. And I think that there is potentially um, a role in reproduction that these organisms are, are playing that we haven't really fully comprehended yet. And ironically, even for the male, because um, uh, I say ironically, because I think to some extent, males have been outside this equation that... Mm. Uh, it's, it's mostly women that buy probiotic uh, products and uh, fermented foods. Uh, it's more obviously women that are suffering from many of these chronic and, and uh, acute conditions. And males uh, haven't escaped. And I, I think that um, we, we're, we need to bring them into the discussion. And we certainly did that in Africa because many of the males got HIV and had the immune response uh, depleted. So they were interested. But... Um, even in reproductive health, perhaps, because the male, if the woman has bacterial vaginosis, then the male would also get it and then potentially keep passing it back to her. So if we can uh, uh, cure BV in women, then obviously uh, if we cure it in males as well, then again, the reproductive process might be better. Yeah, that is amazing. And it still blows my mind that this is not discussed widely and there are probably people that um, you know that need to be aware of this information and it's just really unfortunate that we're not having this conversation at a wider level yeah well you know um in the medical profession it, to some extent it's, it's not their fault because they go to medical school and mm. they don't get taught any anything except how to give out drugs and how to uh, do surgery i mean that's essentially their role and uh, it's very evidence-based medicine, and, and uh, rightly so, some of the probiotic work isn't yet high enough evidence-based. However, there's many drugs that we give that aren't evidence-based or are me-too drugs that really don't add much. And I think the more we train, uh, I mean, doctors are extremely intelligent. I mean, the, the, it's not like they're dumb. It, but we need to train them and give them exposure to this in medical school and then in medical uh, continuing medical education programs, make them aware of the importance of nutrition and of uh, microbes 
and, and let them understand so that they can go out and do their own studies and, and test things. And as I say, it was 2004 where literally that would never happen. And now in London, Ontario, we have it in the neonate intensive care unit. We have doctors that, that say, here's an antibiotic or here's a drug. Go to the health food store and, and ask for a probiotic. Now, that's at least a good step. The best step would be to say to them, no, here's the specific probiotic I want you to take so that you don't have uh, diarrhea or a problem with this drug. So we're getting there, but it's, it, it takes time and, and it might take 10 years, but we are going to get there where uh, physicians are recommending um, and considering in their own head what is the side effect of giving this drug and how can we um, prevent it or reduce it by the, the nutrients and, and the probiotics. I mean, I've had the colonoscopy because, uh, you know, we obviously check for colon cancer. And I say to the doctor afterwards, okay, I spent the last two days emptying my gut. How are you going to replace it now? Yeah. <laughs> and they don't have an answer. They don't have an answer. And, uh, you know, when we, we go into hospital and we get exposed to lots of antibiotics, there's, you know, I, I look at that environment and I think, why are we not bringing beneficial microbes into this environment? It's no wonder we have multi-drug resistant bacteria because we're not bringing in anything to counter it. And the, 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 probably the worst enemy of some harmful microbes are in fact beneficial ones because they can always get drug resistance to the chemicals we throw at them, but they're not so good at countering other microbes that are looking to take over their space. Yeah, it's a really fascinating point. So we know about the benefits of bacteria for both immunity and reproduction. Um, what about the relationship to the brain and the vagus nerve? I know we had some fascinating research come through, I believe, last year, so 2016, about um, gut bacteria and GABA. Yeah. Do you want to speak yeah. to that? Yeah, so you, the, the brain is linked with the, the, the vagus nerve. If, if people can imagine it, it comes from, I think it's down about the, the, the lower part of the spine and it has little uh, arms that go off uh, that attach to the gut. And in fact, it also links to the bladder and the kidneys and the respiratory tract and, and other places. And so it's sending messages back and forward between those sites and the brain. And people started asking, well, with having over a trillion bacteria in your gut, uh, producing all kinds of genetic information and metabolites and signals, maybe some of them influence the brain through the vagus nerve. And in fact, that, that is indeed what people are finding. Um, interestingly, haven't started to look at those other organs because you have uh, also bacteria in the urogenital tract and the respiratory tract that could also be signaling the brain and probably are uh, and we've just not paid so much attention to it. So the, the concept was could you do something in the gut that would influence the brain and some of the easiest things to do are, are anxiety, can you reduce anxiety um, and they've done some clinical studies suggesting that yes you can and they think it's through the vagus nerve. Now, the, the studies have mostly been done in, in mice because uh, it's easy to cut the vagus nerve and then uh, show that the effect doesn't uh, get transferred. It's not so easy to do that, obviously, in humans. So the human studies are just st 
starting to come out now. And I would say there's uh, preliminary evidence that, yes, there are some things in the brain you can change. Now, that opens up all kinds of possibilities because the bacteria in the gut are producing many neurochemicals, not just GABA. They're pr producing norepinephrine, epinephrine, etc. And and then you say, well, wait a minute, we, we treat Parkinson's patients with dopamine. So what if you could do something in the gut that produced more dopamine? Would that mean you'd no longer need to give the drug? So obviously we don't know the answer yet, but that, that type of question now is being asked. Of Imagine if you could take a, a dopamine-producing probiotic into the gut. Could you then affect the symptoms of, of uh, Parkinson's disease? Um, probably not because you know you need high concentrations of dopamine and uh, it's not clear that the, the dopamine produced in the gut would be enough in the bloodstream for example to get to the brain but it's still a question that is now very worthy of investigation and that then says well what about all those other neurochemicals and I'll give you an example of what we've been studying if you take uh, if you have prostate cancer and you take a, a drug to reduce testosterone, then some patients fail that, that drug, it doesn't work. Well, it turns out that there's bacteria in your intestine that love to produce testosterone. So no wonder the drug isn't working because the, the bacteria just say, well, we're gonna keep producing testosterone. So if that's the case, then in those patients, there's no point in giving the, the, the drug that stops testosterone or you say, well, in addition to giving the drug, we're going to try and knock out the bacteria in the gut that produce the testosterone. So again, it adds a different approach to how we manage uh, a cancer patient in this case. So I think this is a, a very fascinating field. It's at its early stages, mm -hmm. and uh, it's it's got lots of potential because you can imagine all the things in the brain that you could uh, potentially in, you know, treat. I, I say treat in a nice way. Because uh, obviously, I don't want people to think, oh my goodness, they're, they're, they're going to give us these probiotics that are going to change the way we think. Well, that's certainly not the case. But uh, another question that's being asked is, in Alzheimer's, could it be that bacteria have got to the brain and are in fact causing some of the problems? And I think that's really, really interesting. And in fact, I bet you there are organisms that have got to regions of the brain, maybe in very small numbers, but they're there potentially doing things that influence uh, how the brain operates. Yeah, I think you're right. There's obviously some really great avenues to be explored. And I think the mouse models are obviously a really great place to start because there is clear bacterial differences in um, you know, control versus condition. So that's a really fa fa fantastic area that science can explore. And even just the awareness for people that things like depression, anxiety, Parkinson, Parkinson's and Alzheimer's um, can be treated by looking at the gut, I think, is so powerful because the, the, the older models were very much um, only looked at with drugs. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, uh, um, I just want to clarify my own feeling that most models mm. – I mean, there's a place for them, but there's nothing to beat uh, human studies. And, yes. you know, we've cured, cured cancer many times in mice and it hasn't translated to humans. So mm. uh, I'm much more of a uh, really think we need human studies. But the um, the, the key will be the, the 
metabolites or the, the signaling molecules or whatever those molecules are that are having this interaction. And eventually it might well be that we'll take bacterial molecules and make them into drugs. But um, in the meantime, uh, there Tom Barodi, who has a clinic in Sydney and uh, does fecal transplants, he's been uh, sort of looking at some cases, for example, multiple sclerosis. If you do a fecal transplant, can you then influence the process by which multiple sclerosis patients get uh, worse? And I, I th don't think we know the real answer yet, but um, it, it's something that we should be considering. Yes, absolutely, and I completely agree. I think obviously human studies are uh, where we need to get that top-level science and very exciting times in, in your field. Well, the thing is for funding agencies, they need, they need more money to get, be given to human studies. That's partly mm -hmm. why mouse work is so popular. It's cheap and easy, but yeah. I would rather see them uh, get more money and uh, look at humans. Yeah, absolutely. So let's um, switch gears just slightly for our final topic. I wanted you to define prebiotics for us, and then let's explore um, you know, their benefits and, and what to look for. Well, prebiotics are um, essentially beneficial foods or, or, or uh, substances. In fact, you've caught me off guard because there's a brand new definition which I don't know off the top of my head, <laughs> even, okay. though I'm, even though I'm on the paper. Uh, we just published this in uh, Nature uh, Reviews. and um, So for the layman, it's essentially uh, substances that when you take them, they are used by beneficial microbes in the gut or on the skin or wherever the site of use is. Uh, and they then confer a, a benefit by metabolizing those substances. So in other words, um, if you took a, a, you may have heard of inulin, is that a, a word you're familiar with? Yes. So our fructooligosaccharides. Normally the, the body, if we didn't have any microbes in us, we just couldn't uh, digest those compounds. But because we have organisms inside us that digest them, then we get the benefits of that digestive process. So it requires the substance, the organisms, and then this uh, digestive process to then have a health benefit. Now, um, one of the awkward things about prebiotics is, so for example, I've seen these on some yogurts, it said contains prebiotics. Well, five grams of inulin will give you that effect, but one milligram is not going to have that effect. Yeah. So what they really should do is, is say contains inulin and, and not contains prebiotic. And it might seem, again, sort of being fussy, but um, the dosage in the case of prebiotics is very important. Um, you have to take sufficient that gives you this effect, and usually it's in the gram quantities, not in the very small quantities, because you're asking that, that amount, you can imagine that food going into this massive intestinal tract with these trillions of bacteria, you're asking it to then um, make a sufficient difference that you, for example, maybe have relief from constipation or uh, this... Um, been some work suggesting that it helps with your glycemic index and maybe delays onset of diabetes. Well, you have to take sufficient amount for that to happen. Oh, yeah, I think I, the five grams is obviously a really important point. I mean, we know there's plenty of 
food sources of inulin, which we're all probably consuming incidentally, like onions or bananas or asparagus, but it's the volume, obviously, that um, we need to factor in to get those prebiotic benefits. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm a great advocate for good food. Like, um, take take the onions and the artichoke, even if it's not officially called a prebiotic, it's, it's good it's good for us and natural sources of these foods are great. Yeah, absolutely. So do you recommend supplementation with prebiotics in order to get that five gram dosage? Well, the interesting thing about the prebiotic market is it's quite hard to go into a a store uh, and and sort of pick up capsules of inulin or or Mm. floss and um, and so I think the, the industry needs to make it a little bit more accessible for us now. Um, and so I, it's not something I would go and purchase, to be honest with you. I'm not sure even where I'd buy those capsules or sachets. Um, unlike probiotics, where I know the types of options that are available in dried form and in food form. But uh, I'm, I'm an advocate for supplementing with pro and prebiotics and fermented food because I, I think those uh, are important for our well-being. Yeah. Do you have any comments on something like an acacia powder, which um, we're seeing more in Australia at this point in time? No, I don't know what that is. Sorry. What is it? So it's a acacia fibre oh, yeah. that's being sold as a prebiotic. And they usually do like a, a, a serve that's got about six and a half grams, so I, I assume intentionally to be above the five. So I, I don't know the product. I guess what I would, uh, as a, if I was a consumer asking the question, I'd say, well, first of all, what studies have been done to mm-hmm. show that, it, it, that the benefit it has? And, and then does it act by uh, modulating the microbes in your gut? Um, because some products, if they don't, operate like that and they're still beneficial they, they wouldn't be called a prebiotic mm-hmm. so we can't just call something prebiotic because it you know it sounds good we have to really show that it does in fact work by uh, by and through the organisms in our gut or our skin or vagina wherever we're using the prebiotics but yeah if it's um, got proven benefits then you know all to the good yeah absolutely very good. And do you have any um, exciting projects coming up that you'd like to share with us before we wrap up today? Well, we are we're doing an interesting study on, in the breast. Um, we were the first group to show that, in fact, the the breast uh, female breast has got different bacteria in it in patients with cancer versus healthy women. And it made sense to me because uh, if you breastfeed for a long period of time, you reduce your risk of bladder of uh, breast cancer. And uh, my thinking was, well, what if women never breastfeed or never lactate or um, never get pregnant? Uh, Could organisms actually reach the tissue? And it turns out that they do. And some of them come from the gut and they they transfer through the, the bloodstream and make it to the breast. So um, a, a really interesting study was performed in Spain where they treated women who had mastitis and they treated them with an oral lactobacilli treatment. And not only did they cure the mastitis better than the antibiotic, but the organisms that the woman swallowed made it through to the breast itself. 
So that means that potentially we can impact the organisms in the breast by taking a probiotic. So we're going to be studying that a bit more closely. Um, I'm, I don't want the readers to suggest that that means we can treat or prevent breast cancer. We're a long way from making that correlation. But um, the, the breast microbiota is extremely fascinating because it's it's what is being passed on to the baby when we do breastfeed. Mm. And it's it's also uh, potentially one of the environmental factors that might play a role in cancer, which of course is a devastating condition in women. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, we look forward to reading more about your research. So I'll pop some links in the show notes for our um, our listeners to learn more about some of your studies and to learn more about you. Um, we really appreciate your knowledge. It's been great to have you on the show. Yeah, well, thanks a lot. Hopefully uh, the listeners will uh, enjoy it, learn from it and do their own reading. And um, there's nothing better than then looking and checking the facts for yourself. Mm. I always tell people, don't believe me, believe what's published. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. Absolutely. So head to the show notes team to check out more. And thanks again. We'll, um, We'll speak soon, hopefully, Gregor. Take care. Thanks. Take care. Bye. This has been a production of thewellnesscouch.com. Check us out on Facebook and join in the conversation on facebook.com forward slash thewellnesscouch. Subscribe to each show on iTunes and check us out on Twitter. The Wellness Couch, streaming wellness into your lives. Whilst the Wellness Couch presenter endeavor to provide accurate and helpful information to their listeners, these podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Wellness Couch podcasts.